We had an all-call uh, night on Wednesday for people who were willing to come and paint, and we said we will take people of all skill levels. And I know that we meant that because I was allowed to be here and help, and I am no painter. And there's some obvious skill uh, on display here. Uh, some of these animals and the, the grain in the, uh, the fences and the shadowing on the, uh, on the silo. And my contribution to this was the black on the roof of the barn. And you can see how even that is. I did an excellent job on that. They gave me a job where all you did is just put one color on and you were done. That was my contribution. Um, but as we got everybody together on, on that Wednesday evening and people were painting, there were obviously some people that were really skilled and they had experience and they could, they could knock it out, do something that it would take me forever to do poorly. They did it well very quickly. And uh, that's just how we're all wired, right? There are different things that we're good at that somebody else maybe isn't as good at. And what's interesting is that when you read the Gospel of John is that you see that Jesus has interactions with all kinds of people. People who are religious, people who are irreligious. He has interactions with both genders. He has interactions with people who are rich and poor. His interactions with the poor uh, beggar who is disabled. And he also stands in front of powerful people in court. And in every one of those lives, Jesus has some truth, a message for them. And wherever you're at today, whether you've been going to church your whole life, or today's your first time, whether you know the Bible well or you don't, Jesus has truth for you today in the Gospel of John. And we see that in this passage in John chapter 3, because in John chapter 3 we have the record of Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's one of the religious leaders. He is one of the most elite teachers and keepers of the law. And he needs what Jesus has to say to him. Now, it may be that you went to vacation Bible school when you were a kid. You were like me. Not only did you go to vacation Bible school, your mom sent you to the Baptist church down the streets vacation Bible school too, even though that's not where you went to church. And you went to Sunday school and you had, went to church camp and you know a lot of Bible. Maybe you even went to Christian school or you graduated from Bible college and you know a lot about the Bible. But I want you to see that just like Nicodemus needed some truth from Jesus, you do too. No matter your experience with religious things or with the Bible. Let's look at John chapter 3 and verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God. For no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. There's already a lot right here. Hold your Bibles open. We're going to look back at these verses several times. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night with some questions. And we know that this is a broader conversation than what's recorded here, because if we read all 15 verses of John 3, 1 to 15, it would take us about three minutes. But this was most likely a conversation that took place over three hours. And John is giving the highlights. We know that to be the case because John tells us in verses 1 and 2 that Nicodemus comes and he gives Jesus a greeting, but verse 3 jumps to Jesus answering a question that we don't have record of. 
Nicodemus comes and he respects Jesus and refers to him as teacher and rabbi, but he's confused and he has some questions. He's come to Jesus for some clarity. And it's important that you remember that last week we looked at John chapter 2, where Jesus goes from offering wine at the wedding, turning water into wine, to throwing people out of the temple, and the religious leaders come to him and say, what are you doing? Nicodemus would have been one of those. And so he comes to Jesus at night with some questions. And that's important for you to pick up on, because you can know a lot about the Bible, like Nicodemus did, and still be in the dark about Jesus. Still be unsure about who Jesus is and why it matters. Nicodemus shows Jesus respect when he shows up. He says, Rabbi. That was a big deal to call someone a rabbi. And for Nicodemus, who was a religious leader and a ruler in Israel, he's a person with religious power and political power. For him to call Jesus a rabbi, that was a big deal. And so he's showing respect and appreciation for Jesus. And he even acknowledges, surely you've come from God. Because how could you do the miracles that you're doing if you didn't? And so while he's showing Jesus respect, and he appreciates the fact that Jesus is doing these miracles, he doesn't really know who Jesus is. Because throughout this passage, Jesus is going to refer to himself as the Son of God, or refer to himself as the Son of Man, but Nicodemus sees him only as the teacher or rabbi. And there are many people that they respect the Bible, They appreciate that Jesus is a good teacher, but they don't know Him really. They're in the dark. They know a lot about the Bible. And it may be that you've been coming to church here for a while, and you've been hearing me preach, and you know a good bit about the Gospel of John, because we've been going over it for several weeks, but you don't know the Jesus of the Gospel of John. And that's the whole reason that John wrote his book. Remember, he said, I write these things that you might believe in His name, and believing in His name, you might have life. That's the whole point. And so if we miss that, the rest of it is useless. I want you to know that not only was Nicodemus someone who knew the Bible, knew the Old Testament law, but Nicodemus was someone who obeyed a lot of rules. He was a Pharisee. And the Pharisees obeyed the Old Testament law, and then on top of the Old Testament law, they added extra rules to make sure that they didn't transgress any of the laws. A good example of this is the rules that they added for the Sabbath day. God told the people that on the seventh day you will rest, you will keep the Sabbath day holy. Well, the Pharisees added other rules to it to make sure they didn't come close to breaking that commandment. One of them was that they could not look at a piece of flattened metal. Today we have mirrors, but then they had flattened metal, and that's what they would look at to see themselves in. And they couldn't look at a piece of flattened metal on the Sabbath day because if they did, they would be tempted to work on their appearance. Now, I'm glad that some of you looked at the mirror this morning before you made your way to church. (laughs) Thankfully, we don't have to have regulations that you're not allowed to have a mirror in the house on Sunday. We should keep Sunday holy, something we should respect. And I appreciate you doing that by being here today. But if we were to add a bunch of rules on top of it, it could get ridiculous. Some of you, you might not know this, but there are a lot of refrigerators that actually have Sabbath settings. Refrigerators that have Sabbath settings, you can open the refrigerator on one day of the week, the light will not come on in the refrigerator. And that reason being, there are people who are still Orthodox Jews who hold to the religious laws, and to light a candle on the Sabbath is against the law. And so for them to open the refrigerator and the light come on, that's lighting a candle in modern terms. 
And so the day before, if there's any lights they need on the house, they leave them on. Kind of like the old Jews, Old Testament Jews, would light candles, light lamps, and leave them on because they weren't going to do any work on the Sabbath. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and so he's keeping these laws on top of laws. He was a morally upright person. But hear this, he was still confused about Jesus. And you can know a lot about the Bible and keep a lot of rules and still be in the dark about Jesus. You might be the most morally upright person in the room today and still be in the dark about who Jesus is and why he came. So what is it that Jesus says to him? What Jesus says in response to Nicodemus is, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. You cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, this would have been pretty mind-blowing for Nicodemus because as a religious leader, and Jesus would later refer to him as the great teacher of Israel, as someone who is the teacher, he was probably a lot like me, that every weekend he was preparing messages or lessons to teach in the synagogue. There have probably been people who followed him around that were his disciples, that they were, they were getting schooled in the way of being a priest by him. And so he's probably regularly preparing messages and often talked about the kingdom of God. But for the Jews, in that context, the idea, the concept of the kingdom of God was something that was going to happen later on. Something that was going to happen at the end of the age, at the end of an era, when they died and they would go to be with God. That was the kingdom of God. But what Jesus is talking about is about the kingdom of God being now. Not hereafter, but here and now. Jesus was talking about the kingdom of God being something we could experience here. When John the Baptist came, he came preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is nigh. When Jesus came, he said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. It's not something coming down the road. It's here now. And John is going to use the term eternal life. And it's important that we get a hold of the concept of eternal life or everlasting life and the way that they're referring to it. Because when they talk about eternal life in the Gospel of John, it's not just talking about the length of days being longer, that we're never going to die or that we're going to live forever, but rather eternal life refers to an unending limit on the dimensions of the height and breadth and length of life. Eternal life is not just something that brings us a long-lasting, it gives us depth and meaning of life in the here and now. And so eternal life is this unending dimensions in the depth and breadth and length of life. Remember what it is that we said that the purpose of John's gospel is? He says at the end of the book, I have written these things that you might believe in his name. And believing in his name, you might have life. And that's not meaning that we have more days where our lungs can expand and our hearts can beat. That is life, meaning that we have a meaning and a significance to life. It's the type of life that we refer to when we say things like, man, this is really living, or that's the life. And that's what Jesus came to bring. Not just eternal life in the future, but eternal life in abundance here and now. And for that reason, in John 10.10, Jesus would say, I have come that they may have life, and they might have it abundantly. And sometimes when people hear that, they think, okay, Jesus has come so that I can have the abundant life. And the abundant life is to have an abundance of stuff. That's not the abundant life. Because you can have an abundance of things and not have real life. Jesus did not come so that you could be a hoarder. Jesus did not come so that you could have three storage rental units full of stuff that you don't need. 
He didn't come so that you can have an abundant life with so much stuff. He came that you might have an abundance of life, that your life is overflowing, that is overspilling. He says, I have come that they might have life and life abundantly. I have come that there might be this abundance of life provided for them. So Jesus has come so that we might have eternal life. That's what he's provided. And it's only possible, it can only be seen if we are born again. This would have been shocking to Nicodemus. And so he responds in verse 4 with a question. How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Verse 5, Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, you must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the spirit. These verses are really important. Nicodemus says, how can a man be born again? Now remember, in Nicodemus' mind, there are all of these things that he's been helping the people obey, all of these rules and regulations he's helping them to obey. And if they obey them, they can enter into the kingdom of God. But Jesus says you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you be born again. And Nicodemus is thinking, I don't, how do you do that? How can I obey this regulation or this law? How can there be another law that I don't even know about? I keep so many. How can there be another one? And how do I even do it? And so Jesus answers him and tells him what it means to be born again. He says, except a man be born of water and of spirit. Now, sometimes when people read that, I'm afraid that they think, okay, what Jesus is saying that we're born of water, that's the first birth, and then born of the spirit, that's the second birth. But what Jesus is, he's responding to Nicodemus's question, how can I be born again? And he says, the way you're born again is you're born of water and of spirit. Born of water and of spirit, that is the second birth. And so the second birth consists of being born of water. And what does that mean? Let me try to show you what, what I'm talking about. All right? It's graduation season. So some of you have probably been to some graduation parties. It's family reunion season. Maybe you've been out in the backyard. It's just cookout season, right? You're in the backyard. And I love when I get to a graduation party or a cookout, and they've got both lemonade and sweet tea. Because I'm going to mix the two of them half and half and make an Arnold Palmer. That's going to be my drink. I imagine if you saw me, and I'm there, and I've got two drinks, and you say, what are you drinking there? And I say, i got an Arnold Palmer. And you go, what is that? I would say, well, it's half sweet tea and half lemonade. You would probably not think that I've got a cup of lemonade and a cup of sweet tea and that I'm drinking them both, right? You'd probably think he's got a cup that's half sweet tea and half lemonade, and he's holding his kid's drink or his wife's drink, right? When Nicodemus says, how can I be born again? Jesus tells him the two elements that consist of the second birth, born of water and of the Spirit. We're all born in the flesh. The second birth consists of born of water and born of the Spirit. What does this mean? Well, in Nicodemus, his day, the big thing that was happening was John the Baptist had been preaching this message, and when people accepted the message, they would be baptized in the water. 
And it was such a big deal that Nicodemus and the other Pharisees sent representatives to John the Baptist, and they said, why are you baptizing people in the water? And he explains, and people come to believe the message of what? Repentance, that they are baptized. Born of water would have had this significance of following the message of John the Baptist, the message of Jesus, repent for the kingdom is at hand. Turn from your sin. The message of John the Baptist was turn from your sin to live a new life. But Jesus communicates to Nicodemus that it's not just about turning from your sin. You must turn from your sin and be born of the Spirit. You see, there are some of us, we have tried to turn from our sin, turn from our misdeeds, turn from a life of wickedness, and we find ourselves veering back to it again and again. We've tried to turn from a life of sin to follow Jesus, and we find ourselves getting sidetracked off of the path of Jesus onto some other tangent. And what we experience is the same thing Nicodemus experienced, is that we can't do it. We can't keep all the rules. We can't keep all the laws. We can't stay on the path. It's not possible. And that's the reason that when we turn from our sin and we repent, we're baptized into the life with Jesus identify with Him that we are also born of the Spirit. And the Spirit comes to live within us and empower us to live a life that is different. You and I can't do this on our own. It's impossible for us to live the life of repentance on our own. Jesus must come in. The Spirit must come in and empower us. And to make this very clear, Jesus gives us this analogy, and that's what's in verse 7. Marvel not that I said unto thee, you must be again. Don't be surprised I said you must be born again. Verse 8. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. What is Jesus saying here? Throughout the Scriptures, the Holy Spirit is referred to as wind, or illustrated as wind. And he's saying the Holy Spirit is like the wind, that we can't control where it comes from or where it goes. Right now in our nation, there are examples of all kinds of examples that we cannot control the weather, right? If we could, it wouldn't be like this, right? It wouldn't look like it does. It wouldn't be flooding in some places and tornadoes in others. We can't control the wind. It does what it wants. And there's a part of this that we can't control. We cannot make happen. The Lord must make it happen in our hearts and lives. He must bring it about. We turn from our sin. We are born of water in repentance and turning from our sin. But the Spirit of God carries us, just like the wind. You and I, we can see the impact of the wind. We can hear the sound of the wind. But we can't control the wind. And you know what? Sometimes in ministry, there are some times that I'd like the Holy Spirit to do a little more. I'd like them from, to work a little faster. Times that someone has repentance and they're turned from their sin and God's working on their life and I'm thinking, God, I'd kind of like for you to work faster. There's some stuff that's going on in their life that shouldn't be there and you really ought to correct it. I know that you're God and you can see all things, but I can see their Facebook feed and I know there's some stuff in their life that really needs to get straightened out. And there are times I'm like, Jesus, you want me to tag in for you? Holy Spirit, you want me to tag in for you and I'll, I'll be the Holy Spirit in their life? I'll straighten them out? And there are times that the Holy Spirit works through a preacher, or He works through godly counsel or accountability. But the Spirit has to bring that about. 
And ministry is often like being aboard an old, tall sailing ship. Maybe you've read about or you've seen movies of sailors and they're on an old sailing ship and they're trying to get all this cargo from one place to the other and they're running out of water and they're hungry and there's no wind. And they're stuck. And they can't do anything. And there are times that I want to make things happen in my life or in the lives of people that we're ministering to. And I might as well, like one of those sailors, get out of the boat and try to push the ship across the sea. I can't do it. The wind has to blow. It has to fill the sails. You and I cannot live this life in our own strength and power. The wind must blow. The Holy Spirit must come. We must be born of water, turning from our ways of wickedness and our sin, repenting from the life that we once lived. And the Spirit must come into our lives and make this difference in us. The wind's got to come. It's got to blow. It's got to fill the sails. And we are blessed when we get to see those sails start to take shape. And the wind is moving and God is working in someone's life and convicting them of their sin and bringing them along and helping them to see that that relationship that they're in that is sinful, that they need to get out of it, they need to turn their life into a God-honoring life, they need to stop using the words that they once used, they need to stop spending their money the way that they used to spend it, that all of these things start to happen in their life. If they'll listen to the working of the Spirit, He will show up and make this difference in them. The wind has to blow. And I love how Nicodemus responds to this in verse 9. Nicodemus just very simply says in verse 9, how can these things be? Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, art thou a master of Israel and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto you, we speak that we do know and testify that we have seen and you receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. So Nicodemus responds with, how can this be? And before Jesus answers him, we're going to get to the answer in verses 14 and 15 in just a second. Before Jesus answers him, he kind of takes a little bit of a side tangent here that I want us to really grab a hold of. Before Jesus answers him, he says... You're a teacher of Israel and you don't know this. You're the the leader and you haven't grasped this. I wish I could tell you the heavenly things, but how can I tell you the heavenly things if you won't even believe the basic, simple, earthly things that I'm trying to tell you? What he's telling Nicodemus is, listen, we've got to get this foundational truth down. You've got to get a hold of this before we can move on. Now, Nicodemus is the religious leader and teacher of the Israelites. And he has the opportunity to sit down with the Son of God who came from heaven, who could tell him all kinds of stuff about what heaven is like and what God is like, could tell him all kinds of stuff about the future, could tell him all kinds of stuff about the past and the people that he... But what does Jesus have to spend all of this time talking to him about? How do you have a relationship with God? They can't move on until they've got a hold of this. We do church services at the jail, and there was a guy that was... He's in our, our church services there at the jail, and, and he had been in the church services, you know, and come and talked to me and prayed, and I'm going I'm to come to church when I get out, Pastor Daniel, and he got out, and I didn't see him until I saw him in jail again, and 
we kind of did that same circuit about five times. And I never saw him outside of jail, but he would go out, he'd get back in trouble, and he'd be back there in the rec room. And after one of those services, on maybe the fourth or fifth time that he was back again, they, normally we have a couple minutes after the message is over, before they get sent back to the rooms. And he says to me, Pastor Daniel, when are you going to do some sermons on Revelation? And I said, man, I'm just trying to get you saved first. Let, let's, let's just get you following Jesus first, and then we can talk about that other stuff down the road. But we need to start here. And what Jesus says to Nicodemus is, I can't talk to you about anything else. And there's a lot we could talk about, but I can't talk to you about any of that other stuff until we get this down first. And there is so much that God wants to do in our hearts and lives. There's so much depth and breadth and length that God wants to bring about in us. But it has to start with the gospel. We must first know the gospel. And if we don't know the gospel, none of the rest of that stuff matters. And I love the pictures that are in Revelation. And I love the truth that is laid out for us. And I love the difference that God can make in every aspect and all the avenues of our lives. But we got to start with the gospel. we got to first know that. And if we don't know that, and then that's not making a difference in us, the rest of it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if we know all the trivia and all the information and we know all the stuff about the streets of gold. If we're never going to see them, Because we've not experienced the gospel. There's so much that God wants to do in us and teach us. But we've got to start with the gospel. So Jesus says, Nicodemus, let me put this in a way that you can understand. Let me refer back to a story that you know. That's what he does in verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now Nicodemus is a Pharisee. he's He's dedicated to the law. He knows it backwards and forwards. He knows Moses' life story. He knows all... Jesus refers to a story he knows that Nicodemus is going to resonate with, one he's going to be familiar with. And the story of Moses lifting up a serpent in the wilderness is this. Moses leads the people out of Egypt where they're in bondage, God rescues them through miraculous means. The Egyptians chase them. The God takes them through the Red Sea, another divine rescuing that God does. They get into the desert. There's nothing to eat. God rains down bread from heaven to eat it. They get into the desert. There's nothing to drink. God causes water. And what happens after each one of these rescues that God does, after each of these times that God delivers them, they're excited and they praise God for a little bit, and then they they start complaining. And they get frustrated. It's kind of like some of you are going through right now that your kids are out of school for the summer. They wake up and you feed them a snack and they're good, right? You feed them breakfast, they're okay. And then 30 minutes later, they're hungry again and they're getting kind of grouchy and they're complaining. You feed them another snack and you just kind of do that cycle. That's what God was doing with the Israelites throughout the desert. He would do something for them. They would be thankful. They'd praise. He delivered them. Then they would forget and they'd grumble, and they'd complain. And after several times of this, God had had enough, and so he allows serpents in this location that they're at, serpents that are there to come into the camp, and these venomous snakes bite the people. 
And many people have been bitten by these venomous snakes and they're going to die. And they cry out to God and God once again delivers them. And he tells Moses, he says, take a serpent, make a bronze serpent and put it on a pole in the middle of the camp. And tell everyone that if they want to survive their snake bite, to come look at the serpent on the pole. And how is that going to help them? What medical properties are there in a serpent on a pole? There are none. They're actually looking at the thing that caused them pain. But by having the faith to look at the serpent on a pole, God would heal them from their snake bite. And so Jesus says, Nicodemus, remember how Moses made a serpent and lifted it up? And the people looked, and because they looked at the serpent, they lived. Because they believed, they were healed of their snake bite. He says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so also must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. He says, just as Moses put the serpent on a pole, the Son of Man is going to be put on a cross. And just as people who looked at the serpent on the pole were saved from their snake bite, those that looked to Jesus on the cross, that looked to the Son of Man on the cross, they will be saved from their sin. The original snake bite. Back from Genesis 3, when Satan came as a serpent and tempted man and woman to do wrong. And by looking on him, they can be born of water and of spirit. They can be forgiven of their sins. You know what I like about verse 9 when Nicodemus says, how can these things be? It reminds me of my kids when they're amazed at something or they just don't understand. They just seem so surprised to them and they go, what? How? And for Nicodemus, this person who was trying to obey all of these laws all of his life and teach other people how to obey these laws, for Jesus to say that we can be born of water and born of spirit and enter into the kingdom of heaven, he's saying, how can this be? How is it possible that these things can happen? And Jesus says, because I'm going to be lifted up on a cross. Like the serpent was lifted up on a pole. Like the, the object of pain and suffering the people looked on it and they were saved and people will look on the object of pain and suffering of the cross where our sin was paid for and when they look they will live and it's possible because jesus came and lived the life that nicodemus could not live and that you and i could never live and he died the death that we deserve so that we could have the life that we could never earn and that's the gospel. Jesus coming and taking the punishment that we should have so that we can have his life that we don't deserve. Jesus came born as a man to die so that we can live anew. How is this possible? How can these things be? Because Jesus was lifted up like the serpent on the pole, only on a cross of pain and suffering, and shame, and sin. And by looking at Jesus on the cross, the cross which is the emblem of our shame, by looking to him, we live. And the very next verse is what? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus gave, God gave his son Jesus so that we might have 
that eternal life. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer.